Now we're going to read God's Word. We're reading from Genesis chapter 28, verse 10, to chapter 30, verse 2. Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father and the God of Jacob, God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a full tenth. I will give a full tenth to you. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field. And behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well, the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, it is well, and see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was speaking with them, Rachel came from her father's sheep, for she was the shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw the, Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. 
and he stayed with him for a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and in appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpha to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God? Who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? It is challenging to preach on Old Testament narrative. But as I said the last time, I think it's important to keep in mind two principles. One is that God remains the same. He is the same in the Old Testament as in the New Testament. God doesn't change. And the way he deals with his people doesn't fundamentally change. And the second principle is this, that men and women are basically the same in the Old Testament and in the New. So it's on that basis I'd like to tackle the passage which we have before us. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Let's pray. O Lord, the entrance of your word gives light. 
We pray that as we study your word together this evening, by the illumination of your spirit, we may be instructed and transformed for your glory. Amen. The Reverend Douglas Macmillan <clears throat> was a larger-than-life free church minister. One day there was an American tourist in his congregation on Sunday morning. And as Douglas shook hands with the visitor afterwards, the American said to him, By the way, I thought your sermon this morning was rather one-sided. Douglas was unfazed. He replied, well, come back next week and you'll hear the other side. I suspect some of you may have thought that my sermon a fortnight ago was rather one-sided because I highlighted the flaws in Jacob's character. And Jacob was a very flawed individual. He was a schemer a manipulator. He was prepared to do whatever it took to get what he wanted. He took advantage of his older twin Esau's vulnerability to deprive him of his birthright. And he then, with the connivance of their mother, tricked his father Isaac into giving him the special blessing intended for the older son. Jacob was a twister, and he belonged to a dysfunctional family. All that is true, and it is important to recognize the negative aspects of Jacob's character. Because the story of Jacob illustrates how God works with flawed individuals. If he didn't, there would be no hope for any of us. We're all flawed. We're all sinners. Sinners by nature and sinners by practice. But if God can work with a man like Jacob, he can work with the likes of you and me. The Christian gospel, after all, isn't for good people. It's for bad people who recognize their need of God's mercy. Jacob was a flawed individual. That's one side of the story. But it's not the whole story. You see, God worked with flawed Jacob and began to change him. He began to mold him into the kind of man he wanted him to be. As a result, Jacob became more aware of God and more dependent on him. And it's still the case that when God forgives our sin and adopts us into his family, he doesn't simply leave us as we are. His purpose is to make us more like his son, more like the Lord Jesus, to change us into his likeness. The God who refined, flawed Jacob wants all his sons and daughters to develop more of the family likeness. 
Two preliminary points are worth making. First, over the course of his life, Jacob became a better man, but he didn't become perfect. His faith in God grew, he became more godly, but he remained a flawed individual as long as he lived. It's only in heaven that believers are made perfect. Only in heaven is every last trace of sin removed. The second thing I'd like to note is this. God didn't have mercy on Jacob because he saw his potential, because he saw that he had the potential to become a better person. No, it was because God had shown him mercy that Jacob was enabled to become a better man. In the same way, real change is possible for us only as God's grace enables those whom he has brought into his family to change from the inside out. This evening, I'd like to highlight three things about Jacob from the passage we read. They're listed on the service sheet. They are, one, a new awareness of God, two, a new commitment to God, and three, a new discipline from God. A new awareness of God, a new commitment to God, and a new discipline from God. First of all, then, we see in chapter 28 a new awareness of God on Jacob's part. Look at what Jacob says in verse 16. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. In verse 20, he goes on to speak about God's being with him and of his keeping him in the way that he goes. Jacob has a new awareness of God's presence and protection as a result of his experience at Bethel. He'd ended up there because his brother Esau hated him and was out to get him. Jacob was on the run. He was fleeing for his life. He was a marked man. The two brothers had never been close. But now things couldn't possibly be worse. Jacob was on his way to seek refuge with his uncle Laban and his family in faraway Paddan Aram. He'd left his immediate family, the only family he'd known, And now he was heading out to lodge with relatives he'd never met before. He was on his own and he was going out into the unknown. Put yourself into Jacob's shoes for a moment. You're upset about the mess you've left behind. You're afraid that the brother you've wronged will come and kill you. You've no idea what things will be like where you're going. You've absolutely no one to turn to. You're all on your own. That was the situation Jacob was in. 
when he arrived in Bethel, as darkness began to fall, and he decided he might as well try and get some fitful sleep with a stone for a pillow. But as he slept, Jacob had a dream, a dream which changed his perspective on himself and his situation. In his dream, he saw a ladder or stairway going between earth and heaven. Angels were going up and down it. Not only that, he heard the Lord, he saw the Lord and he heard him speak. The Lord reminded him that he was the God of his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac. And he proceeded to repeat to Jacob the promises he'd made to them. Look with me, please, at verses 13 and 14. I am the Lord, the God of Abram, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Here we have the familiar patriarchal promises of a land to live in, of a multitude of descendants, and of future blessing for the whole world. Jacob was all on his own. But God was promising him descendants like the dust of the earth. Jacob was having to flee Canaan. And yet God was promising him that he and his descendants would possess the land and would spread out in all directions, north, south, east and west. God was assuring Jacob that he hadn't given up on him. He was assuring wayward, wily, flawed Jacob that he had a hope and a future. He was part of God's salvation plan. And in verse 15, God addresses Jacob's immediate needs. Look at what he says. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. What comfort there must have been for Jacob in those words. He felt very alone, but now he realized he wasn't on his own after all. The God of his fathers was with him, and was committed to looking after him. And one day he would bring him back to the land he was fleeing from. Whatever lay ahead, Jacob was assured of God's presence and protection. The ladder or stairway which Jacob saw in his dream went all the way from earth to heaven. It made the point that God was passionately committed to this world. Far from being confined to heaven, he was present in the world and active in it through his heavenly agents. 
Jacob needed that assurance. And so do we. So much of religion in the widest sense is all about men and women trying to find their way to God. They try to rise up above the things of this world and to seek higher, more spiritual realities. But the religion of the Bible strikes a different note. Yes, God is infinitely great. He is infinitely majestic. But he's committed to this world which he has made. So committed, in fact, that he sent his one and only son to live among us and then to die a shameful death on a Roman cross as he bore the punishment which our sins deserved. In John's Gospel, Jesus says to Nathanael, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is there alluding to Jacob's dream and affirming that he is the ultimate bridge between earth and heaven. No wonder C.S. Lewis referred to earth as the visited planet. We don't need to go and find God, even if we could. God has come down to earth to find us. He is God with us. Jacob had a new awareness of God when he woke up in the morning. He knew, now knew that there were open lines of communication between earth and heaven. God was present and at work in the world. Jacob was himself an integral part of God's saving plan. God was with him and would not let him go. Not surprisingly, Jacob's reaction was to say, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. Bethel was now none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Jacob now realized that God was everywhere, even in lonely, isolated, nondescript Bethel. In many ways, that was a very comforting realization. But in some ways, it was also disturbing. That's why, as verse 17 tells us, Jacob was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! Why do you think Bethel was awesome? For Jacob. Well, I think it's because God, no matter how benign, is still an awesome God. His presence is an awesome reality. Just think of some of the implications of God's being everywhere. He sees what I do. He hears what I say. 
He knows what I think. He sees what I look at. He's aware of the company I keep. He knows everything about me. Shouldn't that give us pause for thought? How awesome is this place? At Bethel, Jacob received a new awareness of God. Perhaps that's, perhaps that's something you need if you're a Christian. We certainly need to be reminded that God is with us and that he is committed to working for our good. But we also need to learn to live as in his presence. There's a sense in which we need to cultivate God's presence. These days, God doesn't normally communicate with us by dreams, although he may still do so. He has given us his word through which he speaks. We need to take time to read the Bible and find out what he's saying to us. We also need to take time to respond to him in prayer. As we read and pray, our relationship with the Lord develops. We get to know him better and he pours his grace into our hearts and lives. We thus experience the reality of his presence and live in the good of it. And if you're not a Christian, your greatest need is to know God, to know this awesome God. The good news is that you don't have to go looking for him. Instead, he has come looking for you. You need to come in repentance and faith to the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate bridge between heaven and earth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And his promise is that whoever comes to him, he will never turn away. Jacob received a new awareness of God. Secondly, at Bethel, Jacob made a fresh commitment to God. Jacob made a fresh commitment to God. Following his dream, Jacob made a memorial pillar of the stone he'd slept on, the stone he'd used as a pillow, and anointed it with oil. That was an act of worship. And he then made a vow Look with me, please, at the words of the vow in verses 20 to 22. If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my Father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. What do you think Jacob is doing here? Does something of the old Jacob, the old wheeler dealer, come through in the words of the vow? Is, is Jacob trying to do a sort of deal with God? 
If you do X for me, then I'll do Y for you. It's certainly the case that the vow is expressed in conditional terms. The ESV study Bible comments that the conditional nature of Jacob's vow reveals that he is still ambivalent regarding his commitment to the Lord. Jacob is at an early stage in the life of faith, certainly. But I think his commitment here is real and sincere. I think his vow is a heartfelt response to God's revelation of himself and of his purposes. And in this I'm pleased to have the support of the Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner. Kidner comments that the vow is as thorough a response as Jacob knew how to make. He points out how Jacob's immediate reaction to the dream was awe in the presence of God rather than preoccupation with the blessings which God had promised. And Kidner also makes the point that it was standard practice to express a vow in conditional terms. Jacob is making promises to God in response to God's promises to him. If you do X, then I shall do Y, is Jacob's way of saying, you have promised to do X, then I promise to do Y. Some of the conditions which Jacob stipulates are specific, but they can arguably be extrapolated from the promises God has made. There may be room for disagreement as to the strength of Jacob's faith at this point, but there's no doubt that his vow represents a new level of commitment to the God of his fathers. And integral to his vow is the promise that the Lord shall be my God. Verse 21. The Lord shall be my God. These are significant words. At the heart of God's covenant with Jacob's grandfather Abram was the promise that he would be God to you and to your offspring after you. The commitment of God to his people and their answering commitment to him is a theme that runs throughout the Bible, literally from Genesis to Revelation. In Revelation chapter 21, which is about the world to come, we read, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. There can be no greater promise than that God will be our God. And there can be no greater commitment on our part than that we undertake the responsibilities of being his people. Jacob here at Bethel made a new commitment to the Lord. Is that something you need to do this evening? 
Perhaps you're a Christian, but your commitment is not what it once was. And it certainly isn't what it should be. We do nothing to earn our position as members of God's family. But once we are his children, there are family obligations we need to take seriously. We're expected to maintain the family's good name by living in accordance with our Heavenly Father's standards. We're expected to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength, and our neighbour as ourselves. We're expected to maintain good relations with our brothers and sisters. All these things require commitment. We don't do them in our own strength, no. We need God's grace. But effort is required In the words of the Apostle Paul, we are to make every effort to make our calling and election sure. When we see the extent of the Lord's commitment to us, perhaps there is need for a fresh commitment on our part to him. After all, we love him because he first loved us and if we've never put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ we need to do something about that too whoever believes in the Son has eternal life whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him A new awareness of God, a new commitment to God. Finally, in chapter 29, we have a new discipline from God. A new discipline from God. In chapter chapter 29, Jacob has finally reached Haran. There at a well he meets his cousin Rachel as she comes to water her father's sheep. It's love at first sight. Jacob falls in love with his beautiful cousin and he agrees to work for his uncle Laban for seven years in return for Rachel's hand in marriage. As we've come to expect, Jacob knows what he wants And he's prepared to work for it. And he does that. He works hard for seven years to win Rachel as his wife. Verse 20 is touching, isn't it? So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed to him but a few days. Because of the love he had for her. But then there was a problem. When the seven years were up, when it was time for the wedding to take place, Uncle Laban played a trick on his nephew. 
It wasn't Rachel he gave Jacob as his wife. It was her less beautiful older sister Leah. It was probably pitch dark when the marriage took place. Leah was probably veiled. It was only in the morning that Jacob discovered what had happened and by then it was too late. Jacob remonstrated with Laban and Laban dismissed his objections by saying that it wasn't the practice in their country for a younger daughter to be married off before her older sister. But then Laban made Jacob an offer. He said he could have Rachel as his wife too, provided he agreed to work for him for seven more years. It's rather obvious, isn't it, that Jacob and Laban were cut from the same cloth. They shared the same genes. Jacob was by nature a twister. Laban was a twister. Jacob manipulated situations for his own benefit. So did Laban. Jacob used deceit to displace his older brother. Laban used deceit to substitute his older daughter for the younger. Derek Kidner makes a very interesting comment. He says, in Laban, Jacob met his match and his means of discipline. These are very significant words. In Laban, Jacob met his match and his means of discipline. You see, Jacob was given a taste of his own medicine. He needed to see he couldn't always get his own way. He wasn't in control of every situation. Jacob needed to be humbled. He needed to learn patience. He needed to learn the importance of trusting God instead of relying on himself and on his wits. And in his wisdom, God used wily Uncle Laban to teach Jacob these lessons. God is still in the business of transforming believers and making them more like the Lord Jesus. He loves us too much to let us remain as we are. And he will use whatever means he chooses to effect change in our lives. We don't always appreciate what he's doing, but we can be sure he's at work for our ultimate good as he uses situations good and bad to shape us into the people he would have us be. James writes in his epistle, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and that steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. When we face difficulties in life, so often the question we ask is, 
Why is this happening to me? But a better question may well be, Lord, what can I learn from this situation? The writer to the Hebrews similarly encourages his readers to accept the Lord's discipline. He writes, We have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Jacob received in Laban a new means of discipline. Jacob, as we saw last time, was a flawed character. But God worked in him and in his circumstances for his good. We saw last time how the name Jacob meant twister. Jacob was a twister by name and by character. But in due course, he received a new name. He was given the name Israel, which means a prince with God. Jacob became Israel because, you see, there were two sides to his story. Shall we pray? Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who works with flawed individuals. Thank you that there is hope even for people like us. We pray that you would grant us a new awareness of yourself, that you would enable us to make a new commitment to you. And we pray that if you are working in our circumstances in ways we find hard and difficult because you wish to discipline us, may we bow to your sovereignty. May we, by your grace, learn the lessons which you have for us. May we see the importance of sharing in your holiness and of having that righteousness which pleases you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.